You are listening to The Fox, a podcast novel written and read by Arlene Radaski. Chapter 2 Ain, April 2005 Little Mouse, are you ready to be a life partner with this man? Yes, Uncle. I knew I was to be with this man for the rest of time. Happiness filled me as a red thread tied our clasped hands together. My heart sang. I woke up humming the melody of the music that floated in my ears, man's voices singing, and a pipe. Wow, that was vivid, I told the dust bunnies under my bed as I reached for my slippers. I never did like to clean house. I looked at my wrist to see if the red thread was still there. No, just my watch telling me it was time to get up. A dream. I remembered similar dreams and the peacefulness they brought me. I wished I could feel like this all day. I wonder if the dream had anything to do with Jana. If only... My phone rang. Hello? Hi, Ain. This is Kelly. Are you at work? Kelly supervised one of my crews during the week. She and I were friends and often met for lunch or went out on Saturday nights if I wasn't working. I hadn't spent much time with her lately, as I'd worked almost every weekend for the last five weeks. Hi, Kelly. No, I took this weekend off. I just woke up. What are you doing up so early? There's a blasted work gang right outside my window. They started their jackhammer at seven this morning. Can you believe it? I was calling you to find out who these jokers are and put in a complaint. Hmm, you know, Kelly, we don't handle every job that goes on in London. How do you know they aren't digging for a new sewer line? Oh, Ain, I knew you'd find out and get a call in. I just wanted one more hour's sleep. Oh, well, since we're both up, do you want to meet for lunch? No. I've some things I need to get done today. Thanks. Say, are you going out tonight? Is it Saturday? She said. Darned right. It's been too many Saturday nights without you. I thought you'd a new bloke and were afraid to introduce him to me. Afraid I'd steal his heart with my new short skirt. Oh, now I've got to come and see how short this one is. I'll join you tonight. Cheers. I sighed as I pushed in. A new boyfriend. That would be nice. I've dated several times since my divorce, but I didn't have a steady. I couldn't connect or feel comfortable with anyone. I might have been scared because of my experience with my ex, Brad, but I hoped not. Late at night when I couldn't sleep, I rationalized that I was waiting for the perfect man, a life partner. I thought I had him once, but blew it. Then we met again last summer. I didn't know if I would ever get another chance at fulfillment, but if I were, this was it. However, I had some work to do if I was going to have any chance at all. I crossed the room to wash my face. I loved my flat, small, efficient, and most important within walking distance to my office on Upper Brook Street. It was located over a bookstore, and if I took a deep breath, I smelled the dust, blue, ink, and paper from the new and well-read used books from downstairs rise between the cracks of the centuries-old floorboards. 
I was happy. At least I kept telling myself I was. I toasted a bagel and ruminated about my job. After lots of soul-searching, I'd taken a job with Michael Goldsmith Corporation, MGC, as a field archaeology supervisor. It was hard to admit I was working for a big company. While in college, obtaining my degree in archaeology, we debated about the big corporations that were going to take over our work someday. I promised myself that I'd never work for one. Well, I guess some promises couldn't be kept. Something had to pay for food and rent. I worked hard to gain the position I had with MGC and headed the Cultural Resource Management Division for London. This archaeological field was new and I was inventing a lot of it as I went along. MGC was a consulting company that worked with the construction companies and conducted pre-construction discovery research for all local permits. If an ancient site was found during construction, our job was to survey and research the site before the continuing construction or rebuilding. We made sure history was preserved in a timely manner so the construction companies involved didn't go bankrupt. I used the newest toys, the geographical information system, and ground-penetrating radar. I cataloged finds, marked them for preservation, dug them up, and sent them off to a museum. I wrote the reports. It paid my bills and I was working as an archaeologist. What more could I want? Oh, a productive dig on my Scottish Highland Hill would be perfect, and I'd been planning this adventure for several months. A cup of tea, a bagel slathered in butter and marmalade, and a day planner in hand, I slumped into my oversized chair and stared at the poster I'd taped over my desk, an enlarged picture of the hill I wanted to work on. Family photos were boxed up to free a wall for this picture. Its presence kept me focused on my future goal and filled my little home with hope. I opened my planner to my to-do list. The GIS didn't have the hill listed as a pre-known site. I received the farm owner's permission to conduct research on the hill and applied for the necessary permits. I even had a small amount of money, just enough to start. I'd begged a loan from my aunt. She always believed in me, even when I made senseless decisions, like marrying Brad. Now, after months of preparing, I was ready to get a team together, a cheap team, preferably a free team. I planned to call Mark Hunt, a professor of archaeology specializing in pre- and first-century Celts at the University of Birmingham. His grad students needed field work. I prayed he would say yes. This could be my second chance. We had a history. In college, we'd fallen in love with the Celts and each other. The way we planned it, archaeology would never be the same after we graduated. We were going to earn our doctorates and astonish everyone with our research. I thought I would be working next to him for the rest of my life. It ended when Brad Teller stepped into my life. Mark and I had been dating for several years. One summer the university offered him a chance to work at a site in Cambodia. I was a year behind him and was scheduled to take classes that summer. I couldn't believe he said yes. I was hurt he wouldn't stay with me and find a job here in London. After a fight the night he left, I avoided his calls the rest of that week. I was thick-headed, and I paid for it. Brad showed up at a party one night. He was attractive, and I decided Mark wasn't the only one that was going to have fun. Who knows what he was doing in Cambodia? Brad and I danced one dance, 
and then he never let me out of his sight. I thought he was romantic. It was what I thought I wanted from Mark. Looking back, I couldn't understand how I let myself be fooled by him. It was as if the dark Welshman cast a spell on me. I didn't feel towards him the way I felt towards Mark. I loved Mark. I never loved Brad. Six weeks later we were married in a civil ceremony. I never called or spoke with Mark again while Brad and I were married. I gave him no explanation. I didn't have one for myself. We left England and worked all over the world, never thinking about coming back to Great Britain. It seemed that Brad was running from something. His lovemaking was clumsy and unfulfilling, and he started abusing me soon after our honeymoon. My friends sent me dunning letters, telling me not to stay with Brad. My best friend Susie wrote long missives begging me to come home. She told me how hurt Mark was, and that if I came soon, he and I might be able to repair our relationship. Thinking about going home made my heart ache, but for some God-forsaken reason I was trapped. Trapped as if I were Brad's slave. I stopped answering Susie. Her letters stopped coming, and I was glad. They made me think about my life. I didn't want to think about it then. I did menial work for Brad, transcribed notes, and ran errands. Every time I tried to make a suggestion towards his research or create a place for myself, he told me I was stupid and to stop interrupting his work process. I cried myself to sleep night after night. At the end, when he touched me, my skin crawled. I couldn't stand the way he smelled. Brad tore my self-confidence to pieces. I believed I would never be able to work on my own. We were in Africa when a letter came from George Wymouth, my mentor. He wrote that his wife had died. Shocked, I realized I was never going to see Sophie again. His beautiful Sophie, the love of his life. To her chagrin, he often told the story of stealing her from another man's arms. He had to assuage her family with proof of his love for her before they could marry in peace. He often said he would have fought a bear for her if necessary. Now George needed me. His letter was disjointed and difficult to read. Here was a man whose socks were folded in order of their color in his drawer, and he couldn't write a simple letter. I had no choice. My heart pulled me to go to him. When Brad found out, we argued for hours. Our shouting match emptied out into the hall of the apartment building. When the neighbor's doors started to open and people stared, he grabbed my arm and pulled me back inside. I resisted, and he hit me. His closed fist crashed against my chest and his open palm connected with my cheek. Up until then, for a long, awful fifteen years, he verbally abused me, but this was the first time I was afraid for my life. I left the apartment and stayed in a hotel. The bruise on my face wasn't bad. I could cover it with makeup. But the bruise over my heart grew and was painful for days. One thought fastened into my brain. I'd paid my penance. I didn't need to stay with him any more. I wouldn't have a physical rescuer, but George's letter opened my soul and the light poured back in. I phoned home. My aunt wired money for a plane ticket, and I left Africa. I left Brad.
I came back to London, filed for a divorce, and helped George through his grief. We talked, walked, and mended our hearts together. In my heart I felt certain that I repaid George my mentor, my adopted uncle, a long owed debt. I went to a party at a friend's home. The hostess invited a hypnotherapist, Ronnie Craig. Her explanation of the process was fascinating, and I couldn't resist, so I made an appointment to see her. We'll work on this together, Ronnie said. I'm going to take you to a place and find the power inside yourself that'll allow you to have good relationships. You may have a history with strong men in this or past lives, but we don't have to travel through each one to help you now. I want to draw on the good relationships you have with men in this life, your father, brother, and any others you may have or have had to make you aware of your strengths. We drew on my family and the love I had for Mark. I cried and then remembered what had attracted me to Mark so long ago. I learned I could love again. I would love someone who would love me and let me be me, not hold me down. After my sessions with Ronnie, I felt like I had been freed. She helped me vanquish my guilt over my decision of marrying and then leaving Brad. The sessions gave me a new perspective on my life. I could see a productive future of my own now. Ronnie had become a very good friend. When I went to work for MGC, Mark and I would run into each other at conferences. We said hello, but nothing more. Every time I saw him, my heart fluttered, but I told myself it was because I was jealous of his position, Ph.D., teaching, and doing research, nothing personal. Last summer, I decided to try some field work again. Mark just happened to have a project that I was interested in. The University of Birmingham funded Mark, and through a friend, I heard he was working a Bronze Age tomb near Fort William. I had time accrued, so I took three weeks. I must have had a brain freeze when I made the decision just to show up one day. There I was, perched in front of him, his team working up the hill. His deep blue eyes filled with questions as he contemplated me. Concentration lines further furrowed his brow. His lips, framed by his full, burnt umber beard, formed a tight line. A hand ran through his collar-length rust hair, pulling it back. I was shocked when I saw Gray at his temples. In my mind he was timeless. We weren't supposed to age, but here was proof of the flight of our lives. Ain McCray, what are you doing here? I answered. I heard you were working here and had a few days off. I would love to work, a volunteer job, anything, just so I can get my hands back into the Celt world I love. I see Romans all day long in London and need a change. He became even more wary. I don't know, Ain. His mouth screwed up and his jaws clenched. He hesitated and said, I could use another pair of hands, but I don't want trouble. Where's Brad? I shrugged. I haven't spoken with him for years. We didn't separate on the best of terms, as I'm sure you heard. I'd love to help you here for a couple of days. I'll do anything you need, even go for tea. Well, I guess we could use some help categorizing and labeling. At least you're familiar with the era. Oh, great. 
exactly what I wanted, a working vacation. It was strange standing there in front of Mark. I couldn't describe the feelings that were racing through me. I had a hard time catching my breath. Mark had gone on without me. He'd married Darlene, a tall, blonde American biologist who said she loved him for his Scottish accent. I remember my stomach lurched, filled with finality, when I heard about his marriage. I silently wished him luck. I was miserable. They both taught at the University of Birmingham until she died three years ago. You would think, with all the money spent on research, that there would be a cure for breast cancer by now. Damn! Maybe that's where I should have been spending my time, with the living, the people who needed help now, not in the dirt with long-dead people. But there I was. I looked up at the entrance to the tomb, dug into the side of the hill. Behind us stood a tent that covered the workstations where we sifted, sorted, and cataloged the cave contents. I loved being here at this time of the year. The blue harebells bloomed along the sparkling granite boulders. There was a path worn in the grass from the tent to the slippery shale trail leading up to the tomb's entrance. May I go in and look? Yeah, come on. It's one of the best preserved tombs in this area. I think it'll date to about the beginning of the first century from the looks of some of the artifacts. We've found several burial offerings. Wait till you see. An artisan made the bronze swords. It's the swords and the shield that make me think it's a chieftain's tomb. Most of the burials in this area were cremations. It's a real find to get a full skeleton. We slid and slipped up to the entrance. Mark leaned in and asked everyone to take a tea break. Two young men and a young woman crawled out in a single file and stood up. Thanks, Dr. Hunt. Gosh, it's cold in there. I need to get my sweater, said the young woman. Mark introduced me to his students, Tim, Matt, and Laurie. This is such an exciting project, Laurie said. She was so young. Hmm, so you like to be stuck back in an unstable cave. Well, I can say that if you can work there, you can work anywhere. You'll do well in this business, I told this smiling, brown-eyed, wrinkle-free, straight-toothed, innocent face. She donned a huge smile and bounced into the tent after her friends. God, Mark, she... they're just kids, I said, shaking my head. Yeah, the older we get, the younger they are, he replied. He turned to me after following them into the tent with his eyes, shook his head and said, All so idealistic. They have a few more years with me and then off to find jobs on their own. Good luck to them. My company is always looking for good people. If you're referring them, I might be able to pull a few strings, I said. I'll remember that when the time comes. Mark and I got to our knees and crawled in, avoiding the electric cable. The darkness spilled away from a large lamp, set up at the end of the cave, lighting the walls and their scooped-out cavities. The clay was cool beneath my hands. The air was dry and carried a familiar odor. It reminded me of the Parisian catacombs I toured as a child, where bones were piled to the ceilings. The catacombs smelled like the butcher shop I used to follow my mother into on Skye. Someone had carved the tomb out of a small cave. 
It ran back about four meters and was about two meters high. With Mark leading and carrying a large flashlight in one hand, we came to the first carved-out ledge. There were the bronze, shield, and swords that a chieftain would carry into battle while riding his chariot. I could see the outline of his bow, but it had deteriorated. Mark was right. The work that I could see on the hilts of the swords was wonderful, intricate yet strong. This was further proof of the artistic bent of the earliest Scots. Further on there were a few more small ledges with some unrecognizable items I assumed to be clothing and other burial offerings. We continued on to the last and largest ledge, the resting place of the skeleton. Mark stopped at its feet. I sat and looked at the skull and upper body. Oh, Mark, this is remarkable. I leaned closer to look at his neck vertebrae, and his head seemed to be positioned at an odd angle. A shiver ran down my back. Oh, wow! He was decapitated! Nice, Ain. You haven't lost your touch. I noticed it right away, but my students didn't see it until I pointed it out. It will be good to have you around, even for a short time. Everything was going well. I enjoyed every day. In my heart I knew this is where I should be. It all seemed familiar, the valley and the boulders on the hill. My arm hair prickled every morning when I looked at the tomb. One morning the fog was deep and heavy. I should have known there would be trouble on a day like this. It was too Emily Bronte-like, perfect for drama. I think Brad knew I was there and wanted to cause trouble. He'd lost his funding for all his foreign work and had to come back to England. I heard he was doing follow-up conservation reports for different historical societies, none of his own research. I had also heard his next assignment was on the Isle of Lewis. Brad never respected Mark and had been jealous of him. When their paths crossed, as they did in this business, there was always a careful dance around each other to avoid talking. This time, however, Brad interrupted their dance. I was unaware he was there until he crossed the path and grabbed hold of my arm. What makes you think you can do this kind of work? Brad said, his face in mine. Working for a huge corporation doesn't teach you how to do exacting research like this. Who let you in here? His breath made me nauseous and I started trembling. I thought I was over him, but he could still make my vision start to go white. Mark walked up pried Brad's fingers off my arm, and slipped between us as a shield. You two are sleeping together, aren't you? I knew you would start rutting again. Had to go for old fruit, though, huh, Mark? Couldn't any of the young things you work with do you? Mark's shoulders braced at those comments, and he answered, No, we aren't sleeping together, but if we were, it wouldn't be any of your business. Leave now. I don't want you here on my sight. Brad's eyes lost focus, just as they did the night he hit me. He lunged, trying to get around Mark to me, and Mark decked him with a single punch. It didn't take much. Brad, five foot six inches and overweight, didn't match up to Mark's strong five foot ten inch lean strength. Brad's nose looked broken. I'm not done with you, Ain, Brad said through his blood-filled hand as he left. 
Or you, Mark. You think you're so high and mighty. Mark, I am so sorry. I didn't think he would find me. Are you okay? Yeah, he said and rubbed his knuckles. Do you want me to go back to London? Mark grabbed my shoulder, looked me in the eye and said, Don't ever let him treat you like that again. You're better than that. Don't let him chase you away from anywhere or stop your dreams again. Walk your own path. He stomped to the tent. Tim, Matt, and Lori looked on with open mouths. Mark seemed to be very careful never to let us be alone together again, and I hoped I had not irreversibly damaged a future friendship. I tiptoed around him, trying not to get into his way. I think I redeemed myself at the end of the project, though, when I found a bronze bowl that had been overlooked by everyone else. It was under a rock outside the tomb, and I knew exactly where to find it. No one ever asked me how I knew it was there, which was a good thing. They never would have believed me. How could I tell them that I'd dreamt about it, that Jana showed me where it was? We all celebrated on our last night together. Mark shook my hand and thanked me for coming. I left, feeling as if I were leaving something important behind, but I didn't know what. When his report on the tomb came out, he listed me as an associate. Last October, my mood echoed the London, gray, rain-filled skies. Trapped indoors more than I liked, by reports and other paperwork, the walls of my cubicle seemed to close in on my desk. Trying to keep work permits updated and the actual work flowing was almost impossible. Working conditions in some of the locations was unsafe, so several sites, close to being ready for construction to start or continue, were delayed. I was getting daily calls from the construction bosses and was ready to do a rain dance in reverse, anything to stop this horrid weather. It was on a lunch hour when, daydreaming about the work being done in other sites, I started browsing the local archaeological websites. One from the Isle of Lewis jumped out at me. Brad Teller, known for his overseas work, was working on a site on Lewis when he allegedly raped a local woman and was killed by her irate husband. Three weeks after he accosted me and left Mark's site last summer, as I read the article, I became nauseous. I'd lived with that man for fifteen years. How could I have been so stupid? I didn't mourn him. I mourned the lost years I had spent with him and the loss of my personal goals. For several weeks after I read the article, I dreamed about walking the highlands. Snippets of a hill overlooked by a mountain and three smaller hills floated in my mind when I woke up after these dreams. After all the rain-halted construction had finally restarted, I decided to take a few days off and hike. I needed the time outdoors. I trod along the Scottish Highland rocky paths and camped in the rain, heading somewhere, but nowhere in particular. Then rounding a small rolling hill, I saw it. The clouds lay heavy just above its summit, but one ray of sunlight was peeking through, creating a halo effect. I knew, I just knew I was supposed to be there. The feeling of recognition, similar to the one I had on Mark's site, was strong. I got to its summit and the ever-present rain stopped for just a few moments. 
I criss-crossed the even ground and saw the hill fort in my mind's eye. It was in a perfect position. Visibility was good in three directions. The oak trees in the distance were far enough away to allow a warning if anyone tried to come up to the fort. The meandering stream that ran through the oak grove proved water was available. A strong, squat mountain behind was close enough to provide a protective wall for the back of the fortress. The meadows were clear as they should have been, and there was the farmer's long-haired cattle foraging in a bog-like depression. I turned around several times to take in the whole view. Something was missing. Several things seemed out of place. Suddenly a flock of sheep pictured itself in my mind. There should be sheep on this land, I said to myself, and they should be right over there. But they weren't there. Why would I wonder where the sheep were? I'd never been here before. I didn't even know if the farmer who owned this land had sheep. Well, most farmers raised sheep in this part of Scotland. I made a mental note to ask him when I came. Yes, I knew at that moment I was coming back. As I wandered over the grounds, I stopped on a slight depression that would have been close to the fort's walls. I pulled my lunch from my backpack, and as I sat, a warm hand-like weight rested welcoming on my shoulder. I planned my return when I worked the rest of the winter in London. I longed to work on that hill, the hill in my picture. I'd completed all the necessary steps. I'd found money, just enough to support a few others and myself for about two weeks. With a few people and rudimentary equipment, we could begin a dig. After we found what I knew was there, money and other resources would come pouring in. Now I had to convince Mark to come with me. I needed his team. My instincts told me he was the one to call. I said a small prayer to the gods and asked for his understanding. Oh, gosh, why was this so hard? After hesitating and stalling until the morning was almost gone, I dialed. Hello, Mark. This is Ain. I've a proposition for your students and a favor to ask of you. Please join me again for another chapter of The Fox by Arlene Rudaski. Now enjoy the music of Steve McDonald's song, Come to the Isle of Skye, from the Sons of Summerlet album. His music can be found at www.etherean.com. You can learn more about The Fox at www.radasky.com.
Mention by name, remember by faith the trust in our heart. Never. Yeah.